It's no secret to many of you that outside of Jesus, my family, and ministry, my greatest passion is riding my bike. I, I love putting miles and miles on my road bike. Um, I try to uh, put in 80 to 100 miles a week. I'm a little obsessed with the thing. And, and, uh, but it's, it's uh, an endurance sport. It gets me active. It, it helps me to eat whatever I want. That's a great thing. And, and, but, but there's something about it. And, and part of it was uh, some years ago I was able to uh, go on Craigslist and I found a, an unbelievable deal on a really nice carbon fiber road bike that over the last three years I've been part by part building this thing up to be really a, a pretty special, sweet ride. And uh, one of the added additions in recent months was this winter online, I found an incredible deal on some secondhand carbon fiber wheels that are aero wheels, really aerodynamic, beautiful. I could never, ever, ever afford uh, something like this except this guy who worked at a bike shop was selling them, and they were basically new, and he was just trying to get rid of them, and I couldn't believe it. When I gave him a lowball offer, he accepted it, and I thought, I can't believe I have these on my bike. So I'll show you a picture of them. To this, you say, whoa, that's cool, Pastor Mark. Well, anyway, um, just even by putting them on, I like to ride fast, and, and I'd read a lot that aero wheels like that can actually increase your speed, and they do. It, it's pretty amazing, and it just changed the feel of the ride, and just love to ride as, as fast and far as I can. Um, so you can imagine, you know, I, as you probably are picking up on this, I kind of like my bike, right? And, and here I am on, on Friday uh, putting in some miles. I'd gone through Lake Orion and, and went through Oxford, and then I was on my way, went through Lakeville, and, and was on my way uh, to Romeo, and cruising at a pretty good speed, when all of a sudden, there is this ka-chunk, ka-chunk, and, and suddenly my bike braked. And, and here's what happened. I'll show you a picture. Um, that's a part that isn't supposed to be there. Um, that is my rear derailleur, and it, it just going over a bump or something broke off and reinstalled itself into my carbon fiber wheel, breaking nine spokes along the way until finally the wheel went out of alignment and went into a full-on brake, and I skidded for 30 feet. And, and it's a miracle. I stayed upright some way, somehow got clicked out of my pedals, and a deep sigh of realizing I am now stranded in the middle of nowhere. I think I even have a picture of the wheel. Yeah, there's some of the, the missing spokes. And I'm, I'm just out in the middle, out there thinking, what just happened? Why? Now what? And because and, I'm not riding this thing home. And, and, you know, I ended up calling my wife and she was able to come pick me up. And I'm thinking, why did this have to happen today? Why did it have to happen at all? And then I'm, I take it to the bike shop, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's pretty bad. And, uh, yeah, we won't touch that wheel. We're going to have to send that to the manufacturer. And I looked at them like, well, how much is that going to cost? They're like, we don't know. We're going to put this on your sheet to be determined. They're like, wonderful. And, like, what, what a great, great day. I don't like things that break. Do you? You know, I, I like things to work. I like things to go the way I want them to go. I don't like things in life that break because it's really frustrating and, and it, it gets in the way of, of joy. It gets in the way of doing what I want to do. And, and I, I have a feeling you're kind of the same way. We don't like things breaking. 
brokenness can't be a good thing. There's no way it could possibly ever be a good thing. You know, it's one thing for a a bike to break. (laughs) But there's a lot of other things in life that tend to break, and we don't like them even more so. You know, maybe it's a a young mom who gets diagnosed with cancer. (laughs) Uh, Maybe it's a a little boy who is diagnosed with leukemia, and and we say, really? Uh, Why? That doesn't make any sense. Maybe it's a, a story we hear of a, of a family who's breaking apart because of alcoholism. We're like, what? It doesn't have to go that way. Why? Or maybe it's, as news came through this week, one of our fellow pastors from Charlotte in Michigan um, died in a car accident, age of 51, I think is his age, and leaves behind a family and, and a congregation he's served for 20 years. And we say, what? <laughs> really? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, who wants brokenness like any of those stories? And it gets back to the why do bad things happen? And and what we really mean by that is why do bad things continue to happen to people that Jesus loves? People whom God has redeemed. Jesus has made it clear to them as children of God in their baptism that they belong to him. And, And our thinking is it doesn't make sense that brokenness then would be part of their story. Agreed? At least that's the way That makes sense to us. (laughs) Maybe you're in the midst of some broken parts of your life right now. You totally agree. You're like, this is is really, really not fun. And then this verse comes along. An intriguing one. We we read it a a few moments ago. And I want to read it to you and read it with me, if you would. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, what could something like that have to do with brokenness, you might say? I mean, what is God getting at? And and to get there, I want to keep that up there for a moment because uh, I'd ask my my friend Scott, uh, a good friend of mine in California, I talked about him every once in a while, and I said, Scott, I was like, have you ever looked into this this verse and it's meaning in a deeper way. And, and he says, you know, funny you bring that up. He says, my brother-in-law um, had written something about this. And, and I know his brother-in-law, his name's Jim. Um, Jim is a missionary in Venezuela. And, and Scott sent this to me. And I want to read this to you because I think it makes sense. And, and before I read, just to give some context to it, Jim is a missionary in Venezuela. He, he, he travels to several, several preaching locations. And, and one of them in this village... Um, he, he says that, that they don't have clocks, they don't have watches, and the question comes up, well, when does worship start? And, and, and he's learned that the way they time when church is about to begin is they wait, and when they see the dust of his vehicle approaching on the outskirts of the village, that's when the parents tell the kids, all right, it's time to get washed up and cleaned up for church, and once they're dressed and ready, they send them over uh, to, to meet, and, and then the parents get ready, and then they meet for worship, and and, and so he's learned that once he arrives in town, uh, it's usually about an hour uh, before worship begins. And, and when he's there, he always stays at a woman's house named Matilda. And Matilda is uh, in her 80s, and, and she's this just lovely older woman with leathery dark skin. And, uh, and he says what also makes her very distinctive 
uh, is that she's missing every single one of her teeth. And, and in, in that culture, too, it, as he said, you know, uh, he, he says that, you know, no one speaks, speaks English. So when he arrived there as a missionary and he was trying to learn how to speak Spanish fluently or more fluently, um, he spent a lot of time with Matilda because he always figured if he could learn to understand Matilda, because you have a, an accent above accents when you have no teeth, right? He figured he could understand anybody and learn to speak in that way. But, but he also points out, he says, it's interesting when you are in a culture like that and you're learning the language, everybody always assumes your IQ is equal to your ability to understand or speak. And uh, he, he said, it's just such a struggle but he's loved his time getting to know Matilda. She lives in this, um, though the government has, has built many of these concrete block houses based in recent floods, uh, some people, Matilda's one of them, lives on higher ground and lives in one of the original uh, mud huts that, that many of those who have lived there for many years live in. And so it's very authentic, uh, developing world kind of stuff. And, and, and he tells about spending time with the Matilda. And here, here's what I want to read to you. He says, now, to help make ends meet, Matilda uh, sells tetakas, which is homemade juice poured into plastic baggies and then frozen, sort of like a freeze pop. As I sat in her tiny home on a handmade wooden chair and visited children from the neighborhood who would come to, to her door to buy the tetakas, I watched the transaction on numerous occasions. At that time, as a grand experiment, the government of Venezuela had replaced all metal coins with paper bills, small bills, like Monopoly money. And the children would come to Matilda's door with their miniature bills in hand. Matilda would give them their treat and take the bills. And after the children had left, she would put the money into her hiding place, which was a small clay pot that stood with other similar vessels on the crude wooden shelf above the stove. It was a pot-bellied little jug with a narrow neck. And Matilda would tightly roll the bills and then pop them into the jug. I can imagine the tiny bills unrolling as soon as they got past the neck of the jug, which made me wonder, how does she get the money out? Was there a stopper in the bottom of the jug? I couldn't see one. Maybe she used tweezers, maybe, if she was patient. I always saw the bills go in, but I never saw them come out. The jug must have been stuffed with miniature money. Then one Saturday or Sunday afternoon, as our conversation lagged, I decided to solve the mystery. Matilda, I said, I know where you keep the money from the Tetakas, and, and I'm not going to tell anyone. I, I've seen you putting the bills into that pot-bellied jug, but what I can't figure out is, how do you get them out? When you want to spend it, you know, I, I didn't want her to think that I was after her money. Now, Matilda looked at me like I was uh, a simpleton. I was getting used to that. Pastor, she said, when I want the money, I just break the jar. Now, why couldn't I figure that out, Jim says. The jar was a simple, common, everyday vessel, a dime a dozen sort of thing, made valuable only because of what it contained. Of course she would break the jar to get the money. The answer was obvious, but I couldn't see it. And then he goes on, he says, as Christians, we often wonder why bad things happen to us, why life is so hard, why we suffer pain and hardship and trials of all kinds. We feel that God, that God should bless us by making our lives easier. And after all, aren't we God's chosen people? 
Doesn't he want us to enjoy the, the blessings of life? Doesn't God want us to be examples of the new life that we experience in Christ? Perhaps we've overlooked what Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God fills us, stuffing our clay pots full of treasure of his grace, but there's a reason that he puts the treasure in earthen vessels, a reason that we would rather avoid, and the reason is earthen vessels are easy to break. Hmm. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, that God would take the likes of us and come to dwell as his people, and then call us as his own and, and say, I give you my spirit, I, I give you my love, my grace, and this incredible treasure of this relationship with me. But it's not us, it's not our abilities or our own, own ability to follow Jesus or be strong enough or bold enough or, or smart enough that gives us value. Rather, it's found in him the one who calls us, the one who makes us new, the one who reminds us where our true value comes from. And it's interesting then that God actually specializes in brokenness. It, it actually does make a lot of sense. When you think about it, here's Matilda breaking her jar when she needs the treasure. And it's interesting, God loves to use brokenness in the same way. Because he uses it to reveal a treasure that we've been given. A treasure that the world desperately longs for. People in our lives around us who run into us and in our time of need. And, and what do we say? We say it's by the power of Jesus that I'm getting through this. You know, a lot of times what we say is, oh, I'm doing fine, doing great. All's well. <laughs> you know, I just got to believe in myself more. I got to just pull my life up by my bootstraps. I, I, I just, the only ability to change in this world is found in me. You know, that's a lot of times what we say. <laughs> but the reality is God has revealed something greater and, and that our vessel is very, very fragile. But that when his treasure comes to dwell in us and that treasure gets revealed through brokenness, God has his way in an incredible, incredible story. As Paul says it, we go on and, and read what he writes in 2 Corinthians. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. What a perspective. Paul gets it. I mean, he, he's experienced more turmoil and trouble than anyone. And you might say, well, here's this one who was formerly not a follower of God, and now he is a follower of Jesus. And, and here he is serving Jesus with his life and doing all these things for God and, and on these missionary journeys. And wouldn't you expect life would go easy for Paul? And it, it's quite the opposite. His life is often in turmoil in the struggles that he faced. But his perspective in this, and we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the power is not in us but in God. And that contrast, we're perplexed and we're, we're, we're broken but we're not destroyed. Because through it all, God is present. God gets the glory because it's his strength, his power revealed through our struggles. 
Notice too how he had said that big contrast of we constantly are being given over to death. You know, one of God's favorite things to show us and teach us throughout his word is that not only does he specialize in working through brokenness, he, wor- he specializes in working through deadness, as only God can. I think about going back to Genesis, the very beginning. What is, what is Adam made out of? Just dead dirt. God puts his dirt together and he breathes life into it and all of a sudden he's alive. And you say, what? <laughs> only God could do that. Exactly. Oh, or you fast forward through, through the Old Testament in a moment where you think, okay, God promises he's, he's going to create a nation that would come to be known as Israel. And, and yet he's basing that promise on a woman who is checking into a, a geriatric facility in his long past childbearing years. And God says, I'm going to give her a child. And, and we say, though, that's impossible. And yet God blesses her with a baby in her old age. And we say, only God can do that. Yeah, only God can. Or you fast forward and other examples throughout God's word of how God takes something that is dead. Or Ezekiel, who has this vision of this valley of dry bones, is like, this is all dead. And in before his eyes, God brings it to life again with a promise that I will bring a create a spirit in you that will bring you back to life. And how God's been doing that ever since. Through the one who dies in our place and brings about life through his resurrection. See, God loves working through dead things to bring about life and revealing a treasure. And as God continues to do so in our lives today. Maybe you needed to hear that today. As you face brokenness, as you face maybe a, a season of deadness, and, and you say, where, where's God in this? Where, where is it possibly revealing to me that this is why I'm going through this? Could it be? Do we ever stop to say, maybe God is allowing me to go through this time precisely so that through it, that treasure that he's given me might be revealed, that he might be glorified, that he might be given that first place in my life to be reminded in the world that I live in, the people I talk to in my family, that Jesus is my strength, that I am not. That's why Paul would say it. He says it out earlier in this chapter. He says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ, as not Chris, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You know, a lot of times we do preach ourselves, don't we? We We make those claims, we're doing fine, and yet our God invites us today to preach him. And how does that happen? It happens through brokenness. Jim reminds us in this way, and he says it this way. He says, you know, if others are to see Jesus, then we must be broken. Pride, ego, and self-sufficiency must go. There is no other way to show that the power is of God and not of ours, ourselves. There's no stopper in the bottom. The treasure of the gospel cannot be extracted with tweezers. There's only one way to do it, brokenness. I used to wonder why God allows suffering. I see it now. Matilda explained it to me, and she did it without any teeth. Praise be to God. In Jesus' name, amen.